May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Are you ever glad to know that no one is going to read stories about your childhood 2,000 years from now? (laughs) The gospel reading this morning from Jesus' childhood comes from Luke. Scholars believe it's possible, probably even likely, that Luke, who was one of the Apostle Paul's traveling companions, met and interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus, while he was putting together his gospel and his history of the early church, the Acts of the Apostles. So if that's the case, then it follows pretty closely that Luke received a first-hand account of what it was like trying to raise the Son of God from Mary. Now we can tell for ourselves that Joseph and Mary were keeping a very pious Jewish household. Luke notes that they made the pilgrimage to celebrate the Feast of the Passover in Jerusalem every year. The journey from Nazareth in Judea down to Jerusalem to visit the temple would have meant about a 65-mile walk. On foot, that amounts to about a five-day's journey each way. So the next time you see your missing pewmate, just ask them, you know, did you have to walk 65 miles? Not so bad. So Mary and Joseph and Jesus go to the festival, and then Mary and Joseph head back home. But one member of the party has taken upon himself to stay behind, unbeknownst to his parents. Have you ever had that feeling, the sort of sudden sinking in your stomach when you realize that you have lost something, or maybe someone, particularly if they are younger than you are? and felt the dread grow in the pit of your stomach and try to remember, where is it that I misplaced that small child? <laughs> where, have, where did my keys go? Uh, traveling in a large group with friends and relatives on the road has some advantages, obviously. It means that the pilgrims would be less likely to be set upon by robbers or dealt with roughly by highwaymen. But it also explains how one 12-year-old boy might be easy to misplace in the crowd. Some of you have children or grandchildren that you're nodding along sagely because you can imagine them trying something like this. So if it took a day for Mary and Joseph to notice that Jesus was missing and another day to get back to Jerusalem from where they were on the road, it's not hard to imagine that they were feeling a little stressed out by the time they tracked him down And they must have been surprised when they found the boy in the last place most 12-year-olds would want to be, sitting with the teachers in the temple, asking questions and answering them as well. His parents were, of course, astonished. I've always thought that Joseph was never more relatable than he is here. I like to imagine that he's so exasperated by Jesus' behavior that he cannot even talk to the boy, you deal with your son. (laughs) So it falls to Mary to ask this very motherly kind of question. Why have you treated us this way? The next line is the dramatic center of the action. And the words take on added importance because these are the first words that Jesus speaks in Luke's whole gospel. 
Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Jesus is not yet a teenager, but he's mastered a teenager's response. Come on, mom and dad, don't embarrass me in front of the rabbis. Where else did you think I was going to be? Now, the irony is, of course, obvious to us. Jesus is the son of God. He is right at home in the temple. But it's his description of the conversation with the scholars that I think deserves more attention. Jesus is asking questions about scripture from the teachers in the temple. What kind of questions does Jesus have about the Bible? And what is it that he is curious about? Asking questions is characteristic of the ways that Jewish believers have traditionally interacted with the text of the Hebrew Bible. If you read a Jewish commentary on the Torah or on the prophets, there is this ongoing dialogue and a discourse that takes place sometimes across hundreds and hundreds of years. And the way that they're composed, you get concepts and words being parsed with competing arguments often next to one another on the same page. The meaning of words or of sentences may not be settled even after thousands of years of debate. Reading this way forces you to look at a page filled with discussion, and in person it forces interaction. The ancient rabbis warned their students of the danger of trying to study the scripture alone. They demanded that every student have at least one study partner. So reading these ancient commentaries is like stepping into a very engaged discussion. The interaction over points of doctrine and theology, it's filled with energy and dialogue and sometimes name calling. And the page comes alive because, of course, the questions at hand matter greatly. They talk to scripture the way that some people yell at other cars in traffic. None of us, but you've heard stories, I'm sure. Uh, They paraphrase commentators and they try to explain the text and they dispute back and forth with one another with the same passion that they dispute with the commentators. And these conversations are lively and loud and there is no theological hair too thin that it cannot be split. Now that is unfortunately not how many of us learned to read the Bible. We tend to assume that scripture is not just inspired, but infallible. That whatever is found in the pages of the Bible is good and perfect, just as it is. Often, I think I wish that that were the case, because it would make it so much easier to read the Bible if it were all just a flawless manual for how to live our lives. But scripture need not be flawless in order to be holy. We don't have to list all of them here, but there are inconsistencies in the Bible. And we should not be afraid to say it out loud, even in public. I'm going to do it for all of us. Scripture, and by extension, God himself, can bear the weight of our scrutiny. They both can handle even the most probing questions that we might want to ask. It seems to me that we often choose to put the Bible up on a pedestal or under glass like a museum piece, convinced that we cannot have any questions because to ask questions might open the door to doubt. 
And doubt is the end of faith. But as the author Anne Lamott has put it so eloquently, the opposite of faith is not doubt. It is certainty. So it's possible to be deeply faithful, but also to have questions about the Bible. You will not burst immediately into flame. Holy Scripture is God-breathed. For the biblical authors were writing under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to record God's word. But the foundation of our faith is the living word, Jesus Christ. Scripture points us to him and invites us to enter into a relationship, not with a book or a holy text, but with a person, Jesus You'll remember that John's gospel opens with that beautiful description of creation. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Christ is that word. And as the incarnate word, he pre-existed the creation of the whole world, and by the power of the Spirit, inspired the composition of all scripture. So if Jesus Christ the one who was there at the creation of all things, has questions about scripture that he wants answered. Why are we less curious than he was? Do we have a higher view of scripture than the incarnate word of God himself? Now, as I've said before, we can be relieved of the burden of perfection because the written word of God can be holy without having to be flawless. Because only God is flawless. Well, so what are we supposed to do then? I think we should learn to read the Bible in light of the cross at every opportunity. As Christians, we've said that on the cross, Jesus takes on our sin and triumphs. He shows himself to be the Lord of history by overcoming the power of sin and death. The cross is the moment when God is made most perfectly revealed. And if that's the case, then all our thoughts about God must not just be Christ-centered, but cross-centered. If we accept that perspective, I think it fundamentally changes the way that we think about biblical inspiration. If the ultimate revelation of the perfect God took place by God taking on our imperfections, that is, in some sense, becoming our sin, as it says in 2 Corinthians, or becoming our curse, as Galatians chapter 3 has it, on what grounds could we assume that the process by which the perfect God reveals himself in the written word must exclude every imperfection? Now, that's a little dense theologically for a January morning, but stick with me. If the cross shows us what Jesus and what God are truly like, it reveals what God has always been like in all of his activities for all time. And it is this God who reveals himself by inspiring the writing of Holy Scripture. So with that in mind, it does not mean that we cannot admit that Scripture might have some flaws. Now, before somebody goes running out to call the bishop, Let me be crystal clear that scripture does indeed contain all things necessary for salvation. It is the word of God. 
But every word of the Bible does not have to be perfect in order to be the word of God, just as none of us have to be perfect in order to be servants in the kingdom of God, which I take as a great relief. Because if perfection is required, which of us could ever hope to be of use to the Lord? So if our standard is perfect historical accuracy or moral behavior from every character or meeting the expectations of modern science, then scripture is always going to fall short and that's okay. In fact, I would argue that if we run into problems, we find that it's mostly because we have a standard of perfection. For example, when we read scripture, We all instinctively interpret references to the Lord riding on the clouds, throwing down thunderbolts to be metaphorical, I hope. But the ancient biblical authors, along with everybody else in the ancient Near East, viewed God and or the gods as literally causing those things to happen. But they were wrong. The Bible is not a history book or a biology text. So why do we insist that scripture conform to those kind of rigorous standards? But if we accept the view that all our thoughts about God should be centered on the cross, then it means that our understanding of infallibility and inspiration should also be centered on the cross. And if God reveals his perfection by identifying with our imperfections, then it's pretty easy to affirm that the Bible can be both God-breathed, infallible, and perfect, while also accepting that it does have some flaws. Now, that doesn't mean that Scripture has to be tossed out. It doesn't mean that Scripture is inspired, despite having imperfections, as many have argued. If we accept that the cross shows us exactly what God is like, and that we are imperfect instruments that God can still work through, then it's easy to say that God can work through an imperfect Holy Scripture, just as readily as he works through any of us. So the true standard, then, for Scripture's trustworthiness has to be assessed in the light of the cross. Like Jesus himself, you and I have questions about the Bible that need answers. And to confess that Scripture is infallible means that it will not fail to bear witness to the crucified and risen Jesus, if properly interpreted through the power of the Spirit, with our eyes always focused on Him. All Scripture was written for that purpose, to bear witness to Christ Himself. So if we come to the text with our hearts and minds and eyes open, with the ultimate goal of finding Jesus and growing as His disciple, it will never fail us. As Paul wrote to Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. If finding faith in Jesus is your highest aspiration, scripture's occasional inconsistencies and historical errors and outdated understandings of how weather works and all those other conflicts just fade into insignificance. Because Jesus is the true center of the whole thing. So our faith then is well placed. Now this is a harder way to read the Bible. But I would also argue that it is more rewarding. And if we can do it, 
over time, the text becomes like an old friend or a familiar location, not the intimidating authority that we often see it as. Because we should strive to love the Bible, not just to respect it. In the same way that Jesus grew to love his parents and was obedient to them, not just out of respect, but out of genuine affection. And love always means recognizing the flaws in another, but loving them anyway. Over time, we will grow as comfortable with the word of God as the young Jesus was in the temple. The temple was not a strange place that intimidated him with its size and its ceremonies and its sacrifices. Evidently, Jesus thought it was a fun place to go and hang out where he could engage in conversation and ask questions and give answers and grow in his own faith and understanding. Wouldn't it be a gift if we could learn to regard the Bible like that? as a book where we feel comfortable and at home, not just because it describes for us the world that God has made and not just because it calls us to faithfulness, but because we truly love and desire to see Jesus revealed through every word we find. All of us have at some point in our lives had a question about scripture. Some of them may seem disrespectful or irreverent, but they're not impermissible. And we should not fear to seek the answers that we desire to find. This truth is illuminated for us, I think, most clearly by the little 12-year-old boy Jesus, sitting in his father's house, asking questions, giving answers, and growing in wisdom and in favor with God and with humanity the whole time. Amen.